We're being taught over the last couple of weeks and going forward here for about another seven or so, we're being taught and preached to by Jesus Christ himself. It's, it's, it's truly amazing, isn't it? To, to listen to the, the words of our Master and our Savior. And I would encourage you, if you're not in the habit already, to be reading through the Sermon on the Mount at least, at the very least, once a week. Uh, maybe a couple of times a week. However much of it you can, it's, it's Matthew chapter 5 through 7, because it will remind you as we go through this together, but it will remind you how to respond to people you love, but also how to respond to people you don't love because they're out there, right? Let's it's admit it. And it will, it, will, it will remind you what to say and in what manner to say it. And it will bring us all back to what's really important because we get off track so often. And God has been redeeming back his people since the fall of Adam and Eve. And one day, that redemptive plan is going to be over. I'm praying for it. I, I, I pray for it to be today. Uh, do you? The redemption will be completed, but in the meantime, however long that is for you and I, we Christians are His strategic plan right now. Uh, you might not feel worthy to be so designated, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ through your faith in His death on the cross for your sin debt, you are a part of God's plan to redeem the planet, and each of us has been placed by God Himself where we are right now. He oversees all that. He is in complete control. You may not like it right now. You may wish for a different place on the planet right now, but we have been placed by God to speak and to live the gospel message where we are. It's on purpose. There's no mistake where we find ourselves. And last week, Jesus taught us that Christians have also been placed in a secular society by God to hinder the, the process of evil, to hinder the, the, the evil and the wickedness that is so easily a part of our fallen human nature. And we saw last week that we, as salted Christians, that's who we're supposed to be, we have no business remaining in pretty little salt shakers. That's not what it's about. Our place is to be rubbed into our community, just like salt is rubbed into meat. Why? What were the reasons? To preserve it, to keep it from going bad, and also, the one thing that we all really like, to make it taste good. Yes, to make it taste better. And sometimes when society really goes dark, like some of the days we're living in right now, Christians are tempted to throw up their hands, and when we do that, we're like Jesus' message to us last week in, in what we're not supposed to do, hiding our candles. We're hiding the, the light of the candle that God has placed within us, and instead what we tend to often do is reproach the non-Christian world for being unsalted meat. Did you see how ludicrous that is? They can't help it. You and I couldn't help it before we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's what unsalted meat does. It goes bad. It can't do anything else. Sin takes every one of us, every human on the planet, to the grave. It's real. Sin's not going away until the judgment day. 
The real question we need to be asking as followers of Jesus Christ as we go over this sermon from Jesus to us, where is the salt? Our world needs us to be, please pass the salt. That's what we need to be doing. So Jesus was preaching this message, this sermon, up on a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as you can see from my map, I've got a, a little map here. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. But uh, the map shows us that it was by the Sea of Galilee. We got that up there? No? There we go. Thank you. Yeah, we've got the map. So he's preaching the, the, on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. And less than 100 miles, as he's talking about salt and light to the, to the peasants, less than 100 miles away, if you go down the Jordan River that flows out of the Sea of Galilee, it goes, you come to the Dead Sea. There's another sea, another body of water from off the Jordan River. It's so salty that it's dead, the salted sea. And on its western side, I got an arrow pointing there, there lived a community called the Dead Sea Community. Um, and at the time of Jesus, they had this library of scrolls they were collecting as they lived together. Um, and it caused such a sensation years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found and discovered. But they were a monastic community of what was called Essenes. They had withdrawn from the wicked world. They had gone to Alaska, and they lived out in the outback all by themselves. They lived like monks. They, get this, they called themselves the sons of light. What's Jesus talking about? light. But they took no steps to let their light shine. Instead, they isolated themselves from the world and went to live in their own little commune. And their self-imposed ghetto in which they lived um, was as useless as the salt that was right by them on the Dead Sea, on the shores of the Dead Sea. Jesus challenges complacency. Jesus challenges and leaves no room for isolationism. So now in chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go there. Most of the verses will be on the screen, but there's some that aren't. So I encourage you to follow along in the Word of God. In starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, his sermon now gets practical, really practical. He slams all the current thoughts of his day, and I would like to say of our day, on how to interpret the Bible. He's going to explain all that. And this next section is hotly debated a lot. Do you know why? Because it's hard. It's hard for, for me to take in. It's hard for all of us to take in. It hits us right where we're living. So I'm going to take it in sections. We're just going to go through it. We're going to, we actually are going to blow through it this morning. But I'm going to take it in sections, I'll read it, I'll make a comment on what Jesus is saying, and then we'll all become convicted and then transformed by the Holy Spirit together. Amen? Yeah. And amen means so be it. So you're saying, okay, we're good, we're going to go. So here we go. First of all, verse 17, Jesus declares, Jesus Christ declares that he came to fulfill the law. That would be the Old Testament, all those laws. Do not think, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't, don't even go there. I know some of you are going there. Don't go there. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. Scripture was examined by the Jews of Jesus' day 
with minute thoroughness. I mean, they dissected it like you would do a frog in your science class. Took it apart, all the pieces. And they adopted this legalistic and, and extremely petty approach to God's Word. Um, for instance, on the Sabbath, you can only walk this many steps and then be free from working on the Sabbath. You know, they, they had it down to all these little things. And Jesus had this ongoing dispute with the people, the teachers of his day, who used this approach. And from their point of view, just think about it, from their point of view, the way they treated the Old Testament, it was easy for them to accuse him of abolishing the law because he didn't go along with all their little sidetracks. They even accused him of doing away with it. And from the point of view of his own followers who heard, heard him say over and over again, it's the grace of God. The love of God which saves us, and you can't merit salvation by your own works. So what's the place of the commands of the Old Testament for them and for you and I today? They're, they're so clear, but, but do we just drop them because of grace? Well, Jesus affirmed right here in these verses of the sermon, the Old Testament's continuing val validity its reliability, and that he came to fulfill it, not abolish it. No one else ever has done this, and no one else ever will do this. It took the God-man. It's the principles behind the words of God's words in the Old Testament that we all miss. And so Jesus is going to clear a lot of that up for us this morning. Verse, verse 19. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so, so you, don't, you can break them, you don't have to uh, uh, fulfill them or do them, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts of the law who are going off on God's word around us today and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words. For anyone who thinks that the Old Testament is completely irrelevant and we don't have to obey the principles that God has laid down in his word in the Old Testament and is so bold and brazen as to go out and break those commands and do it in the name of Jesus and do it in the name of grace and then to teach other people by their words and their actions to do the same, whoa, look out hammer is going to fall. And then the people who are listening to him who have been taught by these respected religious leaders that Jesus is now contradicting, to, to, hear, to hear him say that the righteousness of someone who goes into the kingdom has to exceed that of these teachers of the law that we're listening to. My goodness, who, who, who are the top rung of righteousness in society, at least by their own admission, they, they are up there. That must have been so surprising. It must have been like, what? Are you saying then that there's more to what they are saying and doing? Like we, we don't have the full picture? And Jesus is saying, exactly. And it wouldn't be until Jesus Christ's death and then his resurrection that people would understand how he fulfilled all righteousness, how he fulfilled the law to the smallest detail, to the letter of the law. And then he would send the Holy Spirit of God to indwell believers, to guide them, to enable them as his followers to live out 
these seemingly impossible standards, these higher standards of righteousness. So now he gives us some examples as we move along in the, in the text. Jesus in the sermon gives us some examples of how the Old Testament laws really do apply to his followers and to everyday life. They're, they're not just scattered about the big things. It's about you, the way you and I just walk through life and interact with people at work and in our, in our homes and in society, but not like the teachers of the law were saying. And Jesus shows us that in each case, it's a principle. There's a principle, and that's what really matters. That's what God wants us to get here. Keeping the commands is, is far from the simple way that the, the Pharisees were teaching to obey the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, the way they understood it, or, or to take some kind of legalistic approach that you and I are prone to fall prey to to get legalistic about what God says. Do this, and then you're magically in. Just live this way, and then I know you're a Christian. It's bigger than that. And Jesus exposes all the limitations that you and I put on what God has stated so clearly and what he really desires from us. So let's get into it. I'm going to go through section by section. Like I said, read, make a comment. We all get convicted together. First one's murder. How many here have murdered? I bet you don't have to put your hand up. But isn't that, isn't that kind of the way we look at this, most of us? We go, okay, what's the next one? Because <laughs> this one doesn't apply to me. Jesus goes, oh, stop. Murder and anger. You've heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. That's what the people were read, uh, would have read to them from the book of Exodus all the time. Isn't that what our own society anywhere in the world kind of holds to be true also? It's bad. It's wrong. And you should be judged for taking someone else's life. But I say to you, verse 22, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subjected to judgment. Do you, have, do you ever get angry with people? No, none of you. I mean, I'm saying, do you think that people out there maybe do? Uh, like, when, you, when they cut you off on the road. Or, you know. But do you ever get angry with people? I mean, come on, let's, let's, let's all answer it together. It's, it's refreshing. Yes. yes, we get angry, sure, but I've never killed anybody. You're right. And Jesus goes, well, that really doesn't matter. You're missing the point, Pete. Yeah. And whoever insults a brother, oh, there's none of that going on. Every commercial I'm seeing now is just like an insult. Insults a brother will be brought before a council, and whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. Whoa. Jesus does not replace the law with his own commands, and as you can see, Jesus does not relax any provision of the Old Testament law. He shows that the Old Testament law, if we, the children of God, rightly understand it, see that it goes much further than we could ever have imagined. It's not just murder. When God said that in the Old Testament and had Moses pen it in Exodus, it was also about the principle of anger, the principle of insult and contempt for other people of a different persuasion than we are. Let me read the next portion. This won't be on the screen, but follow along. So then, if you bring your gift to the altar, so a sacrifice to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. 
Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. That's the big word here. Reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift to God. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser. While on the way to court, don't let it go to court. Settle outside. Or he may hand you over to the judge because you may be found guilty. And the judge will hand you over to the warden and you'll be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. It would have been better to settle. You see, it's not just about our outward actions. That's how we judge each other. That's all we got to go on, usually. But from God's perspective, for you and I as a child of God, it goes so much deeper. It goes to initiating, being the initiator of restoring relationships. This is hard work. This is humbling. And Jesus, though, do you notice what he does here? He, he, he cuts us some slack. He makes it desirable because he talks practically. He says, if you fail to take advantage of the opportunity that's presented to you to reconcile with a family member, with your neighbor, with someone at work, if you fail in, in attempting reconciliation, you will bear the penalty that comes with being unreconciled, and it can be really nasty. It's not just this one area of murder. It's the entire area of your heart. This is a heart issue. Every one of these will be. The next one, adultery and lust. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And by the way, this is you know, a patriarchal society. We don't, well, we probably still do, but it's, it's changing. This is for women too. It's the look that leads to the physical act. And we all know this. And just as with the command not to murder, Jesus is concerned with the inner person where it all starts, and then that leads to an action which we judge. He does not simply prohibit the outer act. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. He doesn't just prohibit that like our laws do. Don't go over 70 miles an hour. But he drills down to the core. Why did you go over 70 miles an hour? Well, the police officer is probably never going to ask you that. He's just going to go... So is our thought life really that serious? Look at verse 29. If your right eye <laughs> causes you to, this is the one that we all love. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. I mean, what's the big deal? Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for one to lose, it is better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, by the way, the eye and the right hand, very important members of the body, uh, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into hell. This extremely picturesque, <laughs> horrific mutilation of prized parts of the human body is on purpose. 
Jesus is exaggerating to get our attention. He does this in a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. He uses hyperbole. He's, he's a master at the use, use of figures of speech. And he's getting our attention to make this point. There is to be no compromise with evil. No compromise. Draw a line in the sand. He's not encouraging or advocating self-mutilation. We all understand that, don't we? He's not suggesting that if people did engage in this sort of self-mutilation, this kind of even surgery, that somehow the evil desire would go away because your right hand is gone. No, no. If I know most of us, we got a left hand <laughs> and we got another eye. We're going to continue. We're going to find the loopholes. It's critically important that you and I take whatever measures are necessary when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit of God about something in our life or something that we're seeing in society and control our, our natural passions, that sinful desire, and they so easily flare out of control. You see, it's not just the act of adultery. It's where your heart is. It's about your heart. The next one is very, very specific. Divorce and commitment. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There is not a specific command in the Old Testament to get divorced. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. People were not commanded ever to get divorced. But Jesus knows the practice, especially in his day, it was rampant for every excuse. He knows it happens. And so he speaks of the way that it was regulated in the Old Testament through Moses, written down um, in the Mosaic Law. And most of those laws regarding divorce in the Old Testament were for the protection of women who were so easily abused and taken advantage of. And if they were divorced, they were devoid of income, they were devoid of property. They, they and if they had kids, had absolutely nowhere to go or anyone to rely on. And all these commands about divorce and how you write the certificate, and what's, it's all for the protection of the wife. But everybody looks for loopholes because we're sinners and that's what we do. And the men had at this time abused it for themselves. Oh, all I got to do is write the certificate and it's done. Awesome. That wasn't the point. It was to protect her if it comes to that. So Jesus says, but I say to you, this is what you guys are doing. But I say to you, he moves on to his own, God's own understanding of the position Marriage was intended to be this lifelong union between one man and one woman. It was not to be dissolved lightly. And Jesus lays down the highest standard here, not unlike he has done for every other area for a child of the kingdom of God. Higher standard. And in all areas of living, divorce may happen. But it was not meant to be. Marriage is for life. And remember, it's not about your spouse. 
We make it that. It's about your heart. Next one, oaths and the truth. Again, you have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows that you made to the Lord. So people would, would, would swear to promise to fulfill. I'll do this. You can count on me. I swear it. And they would swear using the highest name possible. It would be the Lord. And so you, can, you know that I'm telling you the truth because I'm swearing using God's name. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all if you're a child of the kingdom. Don't take oaths at all. Not by heaven, because it is the throne of God. Not by earth, because it is his footstool. Not by Jerusalem, uh, because it is the city of the great king. You don't do it by any name, okay? Just don't, just don't do it. Do not take an oath by your head, because you are not able to make one hair black or white. You're, you're not even, you can't even swear by yourself. Verse 37 is the key. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. Jesus is giving us the way in which Scripture was understood by the teachers of the day in which he was living, by the teachers of the law. And what Jesus is saying in sharp contrast to them, this is what got the attention of the people who were listening to him. It should not even be necessary for a follower of Jesus Christ to talk like this about the truth. We tell the truth all the time. Do we? And yes, that will mean that for your next job, you could not ever write a political ad. You just, you probably just don't want to do that. I shouldn't have gone there. Sorry, I just had to. It's the elephant in the room, right? We have to become known in our communities as trustworthy truth tellers that will tell it like it is and will say it in love and you can count on it. Like we, we tell the truth. We're not going to lie. We must never take the line that we only tell the truth when an oath is taken. Like in a court of law, you know, where you've got to raise your right hand and I think that sometimes you used to have to put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God. Like that's the only time you really have to be truthful. On my mama's grave. <laughs> yeah. You see, it's not about your mama. It's about your heart. Retaliation, the next one. Retaliation and your rights. So this is where we are at as a society in North America today. Our rights, our retaliation, our protests, all these things come into play and the child of God has got this swirling uh, advice and wisdom coming from all angles. And we've got our own opinions. Well, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. This is hard to swallow. I, I admit, it is. This is a tough one. It doesn't mean, as you read the rest of the counsel of the Word of God, the apostles who wrote all those epistles and the rest of Jesus' teaching, we know that it definitely doesn't mean that we let evil triumph in our communities. Because, hey, we're supposed to be salt and light. Jesus is referring to knee-jerk 
acts of retaliation, sudden retaliation. He's not talking about public order. He's not talking about defending your family. Um, he's not talking about using the law as a protection. He's instructing his followers, you and I, not to be intent on immediately getting revenge in kind when someone has wronged us because that's our knee-jerk reaction. You hit me, I hit you. You took from me, I'm going to take from you. You dinged my car, I'm going to ding your car. It's all kinds of ways we handle this. Jesus says, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Has anyone in here, ever, you don't have to put your hand up, anyone ever done this? To be a victim of some form of evil is horrible. But it doesn't give any one of us in this room the right to take the law into our own hands. To hit back, to make it even. That's what gangs do. That's what the mob does. And that's what law and government are for. There will be occasions when you and I have to stand up for the truth. Or maybe, maybe even a verbal, peaceful protest is required. Jesus, Jesus talked about that. He drew attention to the illegality of his trial. It's in John chapter 18, verses 22 and 23. And he points out, he says, this isn't right. This isn't the way court's supposed to go down. This is wrong. But those occasions are never for revenge. I see a lot of revenge going on. Who is responsible for revenge? God. And he uses law and order in order to accomplish that. We are responsible for seeing justice and the truth being done. Verse 40, and if someone wants to sue you, this comes up a lot, it's like nothing has changed in 2,000 years. And if someone wants to sue you and to take your tunic, and, and the tunic was your, your inner garment that you wore, and over that you wore a cloak, it's, it was the least expensive item you probably were wearing. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, obviously you've done something to warrant them wanting to sue you. Okay, so let's consider that. Give him your coat also, the more expensive part. It's, I mean, who thinks like this? Apparently, followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus envisions not going to court again, but settling outside of court. The proper response is not to fight back, but to be ready to give the person something to make restitution, to take care of the issue, to make it go away. Not to be ready to fight and to, to I'm going I'm to battle to the end. It's again an extreme example to make a point to get our attention, to make us go, yeah, that's kind of, kind of weird. I don't know if I'd ever do that. Jesus is making a point. In case you're thinking of loopholes to what he just said, look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is telling his followers that when they are in that day and age, and it was the law, when they are compelled to drop whatever they are doing for a governing authority, to take a load and to walk it a mile, that was the law. And he said they should not only just show their willingness 
to do that and do it cheerfully, but they should go the extra mile. That's where that expression comes from. Go another mile. Who does this? Again, the answer, followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of the kingdom. The right thing Jesus says is to not only put up cheerfully with the unreasonable and disliked demands of authorities over us, but to go beyond what is being asked. It's not about getting even. It's not about demanding your rights. It's about our heart. And the last one, the hard, well, these are all hard, but I, to me, this is one of the hard ones. Love your enemies. You have heard it was said, love your enemy and, I mean, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Old Testament was taught as saying this, but it doesn't say this. But it was being taught this way. This is how it was being skewed, that we love our neighbors and we hate our enemies. That's pretty easy, right? I mean, who can't do that? I mean, you love those in your nation, but you hate everybody outside of your nation. But it went even further than that for these people, as it has for us in our society. It went to distinguishing people in your nation. Who were the good Israelites and who were the bad Israelites? Who were the good Israelites? The Pharisees. Who were the bad Israelites? The tax collectors. And in that kind of an atmosphere, and it's the kind of atmosphere that you and I are living in today, it's impossible for hatred to be starved. It has plenty to feed on. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemy. What does that look like? Look what's next. And pray for those who persecute you. We can regard in a, in a detached way the persecution of other people, especially if they're in another country, and we hear about it, and yeah, well, we, we, we can pray for them, and, and uh, we can do that, but we're not there. It's not so easy when you're the object of the persecution. Persecutors are difficult enemies to love, very difficult. But it's precisely in persecution that Jesus says his followers are to show their love by praying for the one who's harming them. Wow, this is, this is hard. But why? Why would you ever do this? Verse 45, so that you may be like your Father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Two farmers living side by side, one righteous, one unrighteous. When it rains, they both benefit. They both can get rich. Same if it doesn't rain and drought comes. For if you, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, he goes there. Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? There is no reward for doing the right thing. That's what we as followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to do. That's the expectation. It's not like we're going an extra mile by being nice and loving. No, that's who we are. To love the lovable is what everybody does. And Jesus, he singles out the tax collectors because that's who's the most hated Israelite is a tax collector. So he, he says, they even do that. And everybody's going, oh, yeah. Verse 47, and if you only greet your brothers, people of 
like you in your family, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles, now, he, now he's, getting, he's hitting low. This is as low as you can hit. Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? Gentiles, who Jews called, begins with a D, ends with a G, dogs. He called them dogs and felt righteous in doing so. The Gentiles, even those dogs, managed to act this way. It's not about loving the lovable. That's easy. Anybody, everybody does that. It's about your heart towards the unlovable. Gut check time. Would you stand with me? And let's pray to God. And then respond after the amen in worship to God. From our hearts. We all get to see each other sing on the outside. Well, can't really see you sing, but we all get to respond. Is it coming from our heart? Heavenly Father, our prayer to you, our awesome God, the author of our salvation through your precious Son, Jesus Christ, is to live for you from the inside out, under the control and authority of your Holy Spirit, as you wash over us with your word, your precious words, and you enable us to make them a part of the fabric of our lives each and every day. We sing to you now. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I want you to look at the statement Jesus makes as he closes off this section. It's in verse 48. So then, look at this. Let's say it together. So then, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you distressed? <laughs> Jesus puts the command to close off this particular section in such a way that we, his disciples, are forced to fall on our knees and depend on God for everything. We can't do this by ourselves. No matter how far along the Christian path you have walked, there is still something to aim for. Uh, there's still a lot to be transformed by. There is this all-in about being a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't there? Like, you, if you play the fence, it's miserable. There's this, there's this all-in resolution, and we learn what all-in is through the course of our whole life. We don't ever totally get it. And as we study God's playbook like we do together, and as we then walk the path God makes for us, it becomes clearer what all in means for you and what it means for me. So are you all in? And let's go do this. You're dismissed.